Welcome to John's Grandma Tricks. <laughs> Welcome to John's Grandma Tricks. We're starting a new spin. We're doing a new spinoff. <laughs> Sorry, are we rolling? Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. From WPVMLP in Asheville, it's the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Catherine Campbell. And I'm Jonathan Emmons. And this is Salt. When the pandemic hit the U.S., one of the first places to shut down was the Pacific Northwest. 
and one of the industries hit the hardest was, of course, the restaurant industry. In a region known for being a trailblazer of the farm-to-table movement in America, the lockdowns left many restaurants and farmers scrambling. Author and journalist Becky Garrison tracked down the stories of three separate innovative businesses that are riding out this storm. The Pacific Northwest restaurant scene gained a well-earned international reputation for their locally sourced sustainable food and beverages. However, starting in mid-March, restaurants laid off staff and either shuttered or shifted to takeout service, and restaurant sales all but vanished for local farmers. Those farms that could adapt cut back on their planting and explored offering CSA boxes and farm pickups to get their products to consumers. As demonstrated by three Pacific Northwest establishments, maintaining this regional farm-to-table connection between farmer and chef has proven to be a challenge during this global pandemic. Let's take a look at Higgins Restaurant in Portland. Since Higgins Restaurant's inception in 1994, Chef and co-owner Greg Higgins focused on direct sourcing from local farmers whenever possible. As an organic gardener, this is all part of my existence. It's not just my job or career, he says. His menus showcase his approach to food, where he shares with those customers who express an interest in understanding where their food is sourced. Portland's fairly rigid urban growth boundaries adopted in the mid-70s led to this city being situated in close proximity to small farms. In the 1980s, Higgins met growers at the few local farmers markets in existence. Over time, he developed a network of farmers whose gardening practices were in line with his philosophy. He finds many of his regular clientele are drawn to the ethos, with many of them subscribing to a CSA from one of the farms that supply his restaurant. In prior seasons, Higgins spent approximately a million dollars a year in purchases from local farms. Since March 2020, this number dropped significantly once they switched to takeout. Once they resume dining service, they will only be at 50% capacity, even though they can offer seating in their parking lot. Hence, Higgins adjusted his purchases from his farmers accordingly. Instead of getting up to three days of delivery a week from somebody, we may only get one delivery, he says. Also, they may not be able to use certain vendors until they can grow their revenue to the point where it makes fiscal sense for that particular vendor to drive into town with their wares. Higgins' decision to keep his rotating menu small and compact in order to offer the freshest seasonal food enabled him to readjust to this new reality. Currently, they feature one daily special in lieu of their usual four or five daily specials. Higgins notes, There's just not enough volume of business to justify a full menu but there's still the emphasis on a strong menu that's representative of the seasonal products available in the Pacific Northwest. When Chef Riley Eckersley came to Cantrell in 2018, he brought with him his French background influenced by Mediterranean and Asian cuisine to craft playful food using Pacific Northwest ingredients. In addition to his connections with local farms, he gets produce from their sister property, Abbey Road Farm in Carleton, Oregon. They have been working on farming a portion of this land to generate produce specifically for Cantrell. His menus change with each seating, a practice that enables him to prepare dishes using the freshest products on the market. If you are truly farm to table, things change all the time, he says. You get to a farmer's market one week and they have all these lovely things. And then you go to the next week and they don't have any of those things that they had last week, but they have a bunch of new lovely things. In selecting products for the dishes, Eckersley focuses on sourcing as responsibly as he possibly can. 
For example, he knows the name and fishing practices of the fishing boat where he sources his fish. He is on similar intimate terms with the chickens and cows that provide the restaurant with eggs, milk, and meat. Since his suppliers can get to the restaurant in about 20 minutes, he can request produce to order. He says, when I order, say, 10 pounds of shelling peas, I get those peas picked that morning and get it the next day. During COVID-19, Cantrell switched to a takeout model. Their menu offered more nostalgia-driven comfort fare, such as fried chicken, that proved to be popular with their customers. Now they are open with seating on their patio, and they have returned to their prior fine dining, fish-centric menu. Some farmers are not supplying restaurants at the moment because they sold all of this year's harvest through CSA boxes. But as Eckerdly does not rely on a set menu, he can adjust his dishes to take full advantage of the ever-changing array of products available at the local farmers markets. Since Orchard Kitchen opened in 2015 in Langley, Washington, chef and owner Vincent Natris focused on a very farm-centered menu with one multi-course menu changing each week. The idea was to be more like a dinner party than a restaurant, with a large communal table and courses served family style, he says. Prior to COVID-19, they had grown into a business that offered service four days a week in the summertime, with their guest check averaging about $140 a person, with 20% service charge included so they can pay their staff well. For Natris, farm-to-table means they live and work on a five-acre piece of land on an island in the Salish Sea, The seasons order their lives, which means they pay attention to the weather and the soil, taking care to harvest their produce at peak ripeness. They pickle, dry, and cure those items needed in December through March. Natris elaborates, I love this system because it is always forcing me to come up with something new based on what is fresh and perfect at that specific moment, right here on Whitby. When they first became aware of COVID-19 in February, They changed their communal seating to give people more space so they felt more comfortable. When the governor shut down all Washington restaurants in the middle of March, they opened their farm stand where they sold their limited amount of March fresh produce. Then they added cheese and charcuterie from the walk-in, cheese, eggs from their chickens, and wine from their restaurant cellar. This larder concept grew to include items such as egg salad, soup, dressings, Caesar salad kits, and sourdough bread. Next, they offered curbside pickup dinners, three days a week, that sold out most nights. Now that restaurants are allowed to reopen, they are exploring the possibility of doing in-the-field meals one or two days a week, beginning with a farm tour and consisting of a more precious menu that more closely approaches the multi-course concept they would normally create, but at a highly refined level. As these three establishments indicate, Pacific Northwest chefs can continue to craft menus that highlight the bounty of this region. Consumers also appear to have an increased interest in products that are locally sourced and produced using sustainable and organic farming practices. In Chef Natris's estimation, an unexpected net positive from this crisis is that small farms have benefited from people's desire to avoid the supermarket and reconnect to local food sources. People are more interested than ever in knowing where their food comes from. Our clients are so grateful to have a place to buy local food they can trust, he says. That was Audrey Weiss reading Becky Garrison's Farm to Table. You can find that story on our website, dirty-spoon.com. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. 
Founded in 1979 by the pioneering Mark Rosenstein and reimagined by Chef William Disson a decade ago, the Marketplace Restaurant is celebrating its 41st anniversary this year. Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant, the Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what the region has to offer. So, uh, I guess we ought to let people in on how the sausage is made around here. (laughs) I wonder if you could tell us, like, how you put this show together and how you source these stories. Yeah, well, I mean, how we put this show together is that it first starts with me putting out a call for submissions and story ideas and pitches. And then I go through and start to get a sense of, of building a show out of some of those best ideas. Um, and sometimes it like this one, this is very, very rare, but we, every once in a while have someone, you know, a couple of different people who will pitch or bring the same idea to us. Which is so fun when it lines up like that. <laughs> yeah, so we had we had um, Becky Garrison pitch us that last story in which she writes about Greg Higgins, and then Greg Higgins's people reached out to us and asked if Greg could talk about growing peppers. <laughs> so, and it was perfect because you know Becky is is an amazing, talented writer. Greg Higgins himself is also a really thoughtful writer. I mean, it's yeah. it's so fun to meet a James Beard award-winning chef who also uh, has a gift for the written word. And so, and he wanted to record it himself, which was cool. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so here's the great chef, Greg Higgins, reading his story, The Grains of Optimism. It's hard to say when it first started, sometime around Valentine's Day many years ago. I've been committed to it ever since. The ritual commences with a thorough vacuuming of a simple sheet of plywood laid over my basement workbench, my grow room. I had become tired of sleuthing for healthy, interesting vegetable starts at local nurseries and plant stands. Nearly always the same handful of varieties and plants that were often neglected or just not ready to make a vigorous go of it when transplanted into the ground. At first it was a modest endeavor a handful of chili and tomato seed packets with exotic names from pondered catalogs that would be sown and nurtured on that board. It's a labor of commitment, no wavering allowed, sound seeding techniques and diligent watering and feeding. The rewards are in the act of care, the sense of bonding as each small grain of seed awakens and comes to life. Gradually, as the number of alluring seed choices grew, it became harder and harder to resist the intrigue of the new and the rare. Buccalochia, ahi limon, lies Thai, ananas noir, Trinidad scorpion, lucky tiger, and many others joined my annual family gathering, each with their own history and lore. Ethnobotany is the story of plants and people, and each of these unique nightshades had an engaging yarn to share. Some arrived in the mail, but others came from friends with stories of people and places where they had been passed on year after year in the ancient tradition of seed saving. These became some of my favorites. Many of these heirloom chilies are subtropicals, varieties hailing from Central America and the Caribbean, far warmer lands than our own cool, temperate maritime climate. They require long days, lots of warmth, and an extended growing season. From their sowing in mid-February, many of these seedlings will require 120 to 150 days to maturation. That hopefully means a harvest in August or September with some favorable summer weather. To have success and bring them to fruition in this place entails some thoughtful gardening and well-controlled conditions. 
Preparations of the cell trays begins with some good soil, moistened and evenly dispersed without compaction in the trays. Two tiny seeds are sown per cell and then topped with a fine covering of sifted peat moss. It's like many tasks, very simple in nature but in need of precise execution. A system of careful labeling is key here too. Someone hoping for a sweet, luscious lesia pepper might not see the humor in the feisty fireball of a Vitali chili. As I sow these magic grains, my mind wanders to my expectations for their eventual harvest and what they'll become in our own home kitchen or at the restaurant. Some will find a place on a charred, bubbly, crusted, cheese-laden pizza from the wood-burning oven in the backyard. Others, the super hot and spicy types, will be slowly fermented into a tangy pigment chili sauce and preserved for use throughout the year as a cornerstone seasoning of our preparations at the restaurant. The sheer numbers of these cherished green children have steadily grown over the years. Like my love of cookbooks, I have never really been able to pass up an opportunity to acquire a new heirloom seed variety. Because of this fact, some years ago I moved up to a 128 cell tray system. Initially, that seemed adequate, but of course, I doubled it that following year. Yes, 256 robust little tomato, chili, and eggplant starts seemed to be the perfect amount. Really, there was no choice, as once transplanted into 3-inch pots, it yielded 10 full plant flats, which completely engulfed my little room with a sea of green. The ritual expands, as do the plants. Their first leaves open, and the seedlings express their need on a nearly daily basis. To produce healthy, vigorous vegetable starts, the plants need to experience optimal growing conditions in periods of discreetly applied stress. Water, wind, and nutrients must be offered to yield the desired healthy results. While responding to all this, there's lots of time to think. How many of these offspring can we plant in our garden? Out of all this abundance, how does one choose those that will stay to fill our raised beds and troughs? The hard truth is that really only about three dozen of them will make that short journey. The others will go out to homes elsewhere and other friendly gardeners. It's an enriching experience to share a living thing that holds so much promise. As the number of varieties and starts grew each year, so did the number of friends, neighbors, and acquaintances who were to receive them. Seeds are cheap, and the act of growing knows no price. It's a selfless, zen-like exercise. Whether to biz, our mailman, lie who cuts my hair, cooks and servers at the restaurant, customers and passerbys, or to the so many others that will be taking part in this magical rite. So what started out as a sensible hobby has taken on a life of its own. Not unlike Johnny Appleseed, our annual Nightshade Festival has become a catalyst for positive social engagement. It sparks conversations of gardening, cooking, people, places, and cultures. As I choose those that will plant and then begin to adopt out their siblings, a sense of completion comes over me. By early June, the grow room will be nearly empty and I'll feel a touch of melancholy over the plants' departures. Soon, however, a new cycle begins in the open air. Those tiny starts begin to grow and flourish, maturing into lush specimens of their kind. Flower buds develop and open and fruit begins to set and ripen as the season advances. We are richly rewarded by this cycle of expectation and optimism and the harvest of satisfaction it yields. Greg Higgins of Higgins Restaurant in Portland. You're listening to the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour.
John Cash. Well, the pigeons ate the wedding rice and exploded somewhere over San Antonio. I picked up the newlyweds and asked them where they wanted. To go, they said we don't care, we don't know anywhere. Just go. Ever since I'd gotten married, I started working weddings, driving this long white limo. Ceremony in Brackettville at that phony Alamo. We were thirty miles from the border of Mexico. Well, they're in the back laughing about some uncle named Jack who got too drunk. During his speech, the tears started to flow. Well, they seemed like a match, so I stopped looking for cracks in their road and just drove. Outside of Concan, the groom noticed. Gold band on my left hand, and said, "You got any advice for us, old man?" Well, I thought for a mile as I drove with a smile. Then I said. When you are dating, you only see each other, and the rest of us can go to hell. But when you are married, you're married to the whole wide world. The rich, the poor, the sick, and the well. Straights and the gays, and the people that say we don't use those terms these days. The salt in the soil. After I'd said my piece, we drove on in silence for a spell. Had gone over. Well, I couldn't tell. Potent advice, or preachy as hell. But when I see people about to marry, I become something of a 
plenipotentiary. I just think it's good, as you probably can tell. When two atoms from the Big Bang get back together with the old gang, I drop them at a fancy dancy boutique hotel. Drive off alone, but I'm not alone. Sincerely, El Cone. an unavoidable stigma surrounding wine. It can be very elitist. At least that's how I feel. I mean, let's face it. Until the craft beer movement, was there anything worse than the snobby wine drinker? For a lot of Americans, that snobbery keeps them from trying to learn more about wine or from really drinking wine at all. And in the world of professional wine service, it has made for a very segregated club, the sommelier. But out in Los Angeles, sommelier Ryan Kramer wants to change that. Ryan Kramer is a writer. He collects characters from the people he meets and invents plot lines from the things he sees and experiences. He is, like all good writers, constantly aware of the senses, always curious about why things are the way they are. He sees the tiny details, but also the bigger picture. These traits lend themselves nicely to Ryan's other passions, wine and hospitality. Ryan is a sommelier at 71 Above Restaurant and Sky Lounge in downtown LA. For the past four months, the restaurant and lounge have been closed due to COVID-19. So like much of the world, he's adapted. He's been attending seminars and tastings online and staying in touch with his community with various virtual tools. He's highly anticipating the reopening of 71 Above with all kinds of adjustments. But also, Ryan has come to terms with the fact that his industry, wine, service, fine dining, has a lot of work to do to become more inclusive and more aware of the story they've been a part of and the one they want to create moving forward. Ryan has been working in restaurants for over 14 years. It began with PM when he was a freshman at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. It's where he hung out and liked to spend time, so it just made sense. Plus, it allowed him the chance to live both his introverted personality and his more social side. He worked at PM for five years before moving to Chicago with some friends in 2011. There he got a job at Show, owned by Matthias Merges. Merges, Charlie Trotter's former chef de cuisine, put a Midwestern spin on traditional Japanese food for Show. As Ryan learned more about hospitality, he became really interested in sake and wine, though he admits that he always had a taste for higher caliber ways to imbibe. Even in college, I was the kid showing up to a party with a six-pack of craft beer while everyone else was chipping in for a case of Natty Light, he says. So a little bit of the snobbish drinking habit was recognizable early. Ryan became a certified sake professional while at Yusho, which was his first foray into certification in beverage, and he kept working toward managing, buying, and earning higher credentials. 
But after working at Yusho as the assistant manager for two years, Ryan felt burned out by the hours. He had met a girl, and he had saved some money and was ready for a change. So beginning in Prague, Ryan and his now fiance Ashley spent six months traveling throughout Europe and Southeast Asia, including a workaway for a couple who owned a huge piece of land. That allowed us to extend our travels on minimal funds, he says. It also allowed Ryan to become familiar with some of the best and most renowned regions of wine. His writer self and his wine self were ecstatic. When Ryan and Ashley returned to the States, they set their sights on Los Angeles. Ryan had started picking up some wine books and was already keen on the idea of learning as much as possible. Literally on our first day in LA, I got an interview with the general manager for 71 Above, he says. The restaurant and lounge were still being constructed and they had already hired most of the staff, but Ryan made an impression. I had worked in high-end restaurants, but never in fine dining. I walked in and saw who I now know as a good friend and mentor, Catherine, doing wine training, and I knew that's what I wanted to do. But the GM wasn't totally sold. Ryan had just arrived in LA and had no real experience at a place like 71 Above, so he asked Ryan why he enjoyed this kind of work. I had a really passionate answer about hospitality and why I think it's important. And that sealed the deal, he says. Within a half hour, Ryan was tasting the menu and getting started on training. Ryan started working as a server at 71 Above, but Catherine Morell, lead sommelier, helped him get going on his Court of Master Sommeliers certification. So far, Ryan has gone through the intro course and the certified course. He was supposed to sit for his advanced course in July, but it got pushed to March 2021 amid COVID-19 concerns. Then, finally, the master course. These days, Ryan is one of three sommeliers at 71 Above. It's very much fine dining, but, Ryan says, he and the entire staff do everything they can to omit the snobbery. They want people to feel welcome. They want to provide experience that's special, not uncomfortable. We have a three-course dinner menu with six options under each course, he explains. One of our features is pairings, so a large part of what I'm buried in at work is hovering over the wine station with course selections from our diners. I arrive to the table a minute or two before the dishes do, pour the wine, let customers know what they're drinking, and why we think it goes particularly well with the dish they're having. It's a relationship. At first, people are a little awkward and nervous. They don't know what to say or do. But when Ryan returns for the second course and checks in on them for the rest of the meal, they relax and have fun with it. They ask questions and want to know more. Ryan also helps people maneuver through the 550 different labels on 71 Above's wine menu. He helps them find the right bottle at the right price point. Ryan says bottle service is something that makes the evening feel a little more elegant and special. It makes the time more of a celebration. Psalms are certainly passionate about wine first and foremost, but they're almost equally as interested in hospitality. It's not just having the knowledge, it's the desire to share it and to make someone's meal and experience better than they expected. It's science paired with service. Psalms love to talk about wine, but they also love to, as Ryan puts it, nerd out about how to surprise guests with that extra touch or how to go above and beyond. In many ways, the sommelier can help hold the whole restaurant experience together. 
They excel in wine and beverage service, of course, but they also need to understand how the whole machine works. Servers are more married to their station, but a psalm can kind of disappear for a while and someone might not notice as much. They can bust tables, run food, and tin the bar if that's where the need is. Ryan says there's this image of psalms as the ones in the elegant suits with a towel draped over the arm, recommending and selling great bottles of wine, spouting knowledge about regions and vintage. But they're also the ones who can usually jump in just about anywhere, help out, and remain humble. Even in the CMS exams, much of the tests have to do with demeanor. Things go wrong. That's just a fact of life. But the tests cover the ability to remain calm and problem-solve. There are horror stories about champagne exploding or dropping a tray of glasses, but it's all about how you recover from those mishaps. Service, like many things, is your ability to show fortitude in a stressful environment. For someone who has spent most of his adult life in the service industry, Ryan's quarantine experience required a serious adjustment. At the time of this interview, 71 Above closed their doors in March and are looking to reopen with numerous safety measures in July. I miss all the great wines I get to taste at work, Ryan says. At the restaurant, he often gets to try what he describes as one ounce that reminds you why you do this. Those wines with such complexity, they send shivers down your spine, like the perfect poem. But also, Ryan misses the people. In a lot of ways, he considers himself at the beginning of his wine journey. He's read and studied a lot and traveled a bit, but the world is huge. For him, it's a lot like writing, There's always more to read and experience, and that only makes him better at creating his own masterpiece. Nothing excites him more than helping someone else begin their own journey by sharing what he knows. In the meantime, he's been thinking a lot with his teammates, colleagues, and peers about how to make interactions more inclusive within the industry. He spent a lot of time recently studying and working to support those who are bettering the wine world. The focus on Black Lives Matter has put a spotlight on diversity in wine, or rather lack thereof. The court of master sommeliers stumbled through it at half speed, with arguably tone-deaf messaging about inclusivity without addressing Black Lives Matter head-on until pressure and criticism moved their stance. They cited inherent organizational gridlock to excuse the delay, the challenge of getting unanimous consent from board members on their response. Ryan says that a number of black wine professionals have shared stories of being made to feel unwelcome in the CMS court. The court has since instituted a diversity panel within the organization and worked to set up more scholarships for black indigenous people of color through their charitable sister organization, the Psalm Foundation, and have released a more appropriate response to Black Lives Matter, as well as discontinued the use of the term master in place of always using the full title, Master Sommelier. Still to date, three master sommeliers have resigned from the organization, mostly citing disillusionment over an organization that has come to operate more as a gatekeeper and insider's club than an institution of education. Hearing the voices of those who have been shut out of a world that Ryan has been welcomed into is at the forefront of his vision now. He's aware that while climbing the ladder in the service industry and making his way toward some of the most difficult exams in the world, He's never been discouraged or questioned, quite the opposite. 
Moving forward, Ryan's focus is on listening, hearing, and working to diversify a world and industry that he believes in. He's tuning into panels and discussions, and he's asking himself as often as possible, what more can I do to help? For Ryan, life is no longer about getting back to normal. It's about moving forward in an inclusive and actionable way to continue serving others, serving everyone. That was Ali McGee reading poet and author Micah Ling's Ryan Kramer wants to welcome everyone to the wine industry. You can find that story at our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. August in the heat, sweaty in the street, tilt a chocolate person well you can't eat it can you and I, I it's actually my biggest weakness i'm hypoglycemic so i can't eat a lot of sugar but if i always keep chocolate chips in the freezer oh i've never kept them in the freezer before so is that something that you can eat in small quantities yeah, in small doses i'm fine 
And okay. if I have to go f- sweet, I'm going to go chocolate usually. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I've always had a sweet tooth for chocolate. Um, you know, there's gummy candies and there's hard candies and stuff, but chocolate is has always been my my first love. And it's and unlike you, unfortunately, if I get a bag of chocolate chips, I will demolish all of them <laughs> in the entire sitting. <laughs> Um, but I've also outgrown, I've noticed this recently, I've outgrown that taste for like milk chocolate and Hershey's oh, yeah. commercial, like yeah. that commercial chocolate, you know? And I, I keep seeking this sort of unicorn between bitter and sweet and um, and and just kind of seeking out different kinds of bars of chocolate. And uh, I think it will be this never ending quest. I love discovering new new chocolate shops and makers when i was in college there used to be that place chocolate gems that was in black mountain before it settled in downtown Asheville. and i'd just come back from doing a music study abroad and i had just come back from like my dream semester and i hated being back at a tiny college having to go to like (laughs) math and science classes and not music classes and uh my friend Lindsay and i would go down to chocolate gems every week and I'd buy a bunch of their little firecracker chocolates. They're like dark chocolate yeah. cayenne and pop rocks. <laughs> and then I would just walk around and just give those to people <laughs> just to see the expressions on their face when the pop rocks kicked in. <laughs> and then, of course, I get like my favorite truffles, which are always the peanut butter and chocolate. But I think chocolate shops are like a big part of the identity of a lot of towns. You know, in Asheville, we have Asheville chocolates, we have chocolate fetish, and we have the French Broad Chocolate Lounge, which is like, you know, the master of all chocolates in this region. And uh, in most cities, you have legendary chocolatiers. And uh, Elisa Schoenberger sent us this piece about a really lovely stretch of, of chocolatiers in Chicago area doing just some really awesome work. And I think that a lot of people don't think about Chicago chocolates it's no. usually the uh, the hot dog or the uh, the the deep dish pizza. Oh my God, I hate deep dish pizza so much. <laughs> I hate it so much. It's a casserole. It's not a pizza. <laughs> anyway, here's Elisa Schoenberger's Beyond Pizza and Hot Dogs, read by Molly Comerly. When most people think of Chicago food, they typically think of deep dish pizza, Chicago style hot dogs, or Italian beef. While Chicago may not have the visibility of chocolate companies such as San Francisco's Ghirardelli's or Pennsylvania's Hershey, Chicago has its own chocolate history and culture. After all, one of the quintessential Chicago experiences is the smell of chocolate in the West Loop from the nearby Bloomer Chocolate Factory. There is a wide variety of chocolate makers in Chicago, from the large-scale manufacturers like Bloomer to the smaller, luxurious places like Catherine Ann Confections and Koku Distinctive Gourmet, to name a few. The big three, Frangomans, Bloomer, and Chicago's Finest, go back to the first half of the 20th century. Frangomans was founded in 1918 as a frozen dessert in Seattle's Frederick and Nelson department store. Marshall Fields bought the department store in 1929, including its recipes, and thus Frango Mints became a part of Chicago's chocolate culinary scene. Another chocolate industrial legend, Chicago's Finest Chocolates, best known for its work facilitating fundraising campaigns with their chocolate bars, also had its roots outside of Chicago, 
1922, Edmund Opler Sr. and his brother Arnold established E&A Opler in Brooklyn by selling packaged cocoa. Edmund Opler expanded the business in Chicago, and eventually Chicago's finest grew to be the company we know today. Of the three, Bloomer described as the largest cocoa processor and ingredient chocolate supplier in North America on their website, was wholly founded in Chicago by Henry Bloomer Sr. and his brothers in 1939. While the while the company would expand across North America, it remains a critical place here in Chicago. That smell really is a treasure to Chicagoans. But Chicago's chocolate industry is more than just these three large-scale monoliths. The city presents opportunities for mid- to small-sized chocolate manufacturers and artisanal chocolatiers. Catherine Ann Confections, a Logan Square-based shop, opened for business in 2006 and opened her storefront in 2012. She brings the craft of chocolate making to the customers through her open kitchen design. Half the shop is the kitchen where they make everything. In addition to her shop, her chocolates have been sold through Whole Foods. Catherine Ann's is best known for their truffles and hot chocolate. They make a new truffle each week and even make savory truffles such as the caramelized onion and balsamic truffle. Their hot chocolate is a whole meal with a side of homemade marshmallows. Duncan is a big advocate of locally sourced, seasonal, and fair trade ingredients. She explains, I'm a big believer. Know your farmer, know your food. Duncan got her start making caramels using cream from her parents' dairy farm and honey from her neighbors. She values the connection between farmers, their animals in the land, and supporting the local economy by sourcing as closely as possible. Duncan also points out that using locally sourced, seasonal, and fair trade ingredients just makes the food taste better. But when asked how Chicago's chocolate scene compares to New York, Duncan says we should have so many more. She also noted that in the time since she has opened Catherine Ann's, she's watched chocolate companies go in and out of business. I think the chocolate scene is kinda hard, but she doesn't seem to see it as a result of competition from her fellow chocolatiers or even the big manufacturers. Kevin Robley, chief chocolatier, owner of wholesaler Koku Distinctive Gourmet, sees opportunity in the city's chocolate scene. After 30 years of corporate America, including getting his start at World's Finest Chocolates, he decided to open his own chocolate company since he came from a long line of family entrepreneurs and it was always in the back of his head. Koku sells a mix of chocolate cookies, brownies, fudge, and turtles. Robley likes to blend South American, French, and Belgium chocolates to achieve the flavors he wants. Unlike Duncan, Robley only sells through wholesalers, selling his chocolate creations to coffee houses, cafes, grocery stores, including the abundance of mom and pop shops in the city. He thinks that a retail space is trickier to maintain, since you have higher operating costs as well as other demands, such as needing to serve non-chocolate food. But Robley explains, everyone realizes in the small business chocolate world, there's enough to go around in Chicago and the suburbs. Robley, however, has seen a shift in consumer tastes over the last 10 years. He epitomizes the change as the less is more crowd. 
people are less interested in buying lots of chocolate for very little money than buying something local that's exquisitely made, deliciously produced, and they'll pay more for it. But he has also noticed that companies have come and gone since he has been in business. For Duncan, she has witnessed crazes of donuts and cupcakes come and go, but truffles aren't the normal go-to for occasions where people bring desserts. But she notes that we like our hot chocolate in Chicago. Maybe the nine months of winter may contribute to that. When asked how Chicagoans and other consumers can support the local chocolate industry in Chicago, Duncan says if we want people to stick around, buy stuff, and bring it to dinner parties, the chocolates are fresher from a local place, and that money goes into the local economy. Robley adds with the recent COVID-19 crises that people might especially want to support their local chocolatiers who are likely reopening their doors in the upcoming week and months. Of course, it depends on the palate. If a person wants something mass-produced and local, there's always Frango, Bloomer, and World's Finest. For those with a more discerning and or adventurous palate, there's the luxurious offerings of places like Catherine Anne's, Coco, Vosges, and others. There's opportunity for consumers for chocolate and hot chocolate, Duncan says. We just need people to get out there and support them. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Founded in 1979 by the pioneering Mark Rosenstein and reimagined by Chef William Disson a decade ago, The Marketplace Restaurant is celebrating its 41st anniversary this year. Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant, The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region and our farmers have to offer.
what you did, this is what they want Why are you still here, this is what they said This is what you get, this is what you did This is what they want, why are you still here This is what they said, this is what you get
from our stories is available on our website dirty-spoon.com there you can also catch up on past episodes as well as subscribe to the show and help us keep going through our patreon the incredible artwork on that website is by katrin doza ashley icomedes corinne pease kelly minear garnett fisher paul Choi, and marianne Papineau. music in this episode by salt bill callahan sylvan esso this is the kit Todd Terje and Brian Ferry, Michael Andrews, Flying Lotus, Marco Beltrami and Buck Sanders, Kutma, Jim Wallace, George Delarue, Nathan Johnson, and Mark Isham. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief, handles the music and selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPVM.